Remain standing as we read our sermon text together from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Children's church workers are in the back. The children can meet them back at the back door. We're just going to read verses 17 and 18 today. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Open up your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we continue our series in this book. Father, help us now as we open up your word. And help us to get everything we ought to get from this text. Father, I pray for your help this morning. God, that you would give me strength. God, that you would um, fill me with your Holy Spirit to be very clear and articulate truth so that it is understandable. And God, help me to trust you even in this moment knowing that I am helpless without you. And God, you do your work within your people. Lord, just keep me faithful to this text and do what you want through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we saw how Paul was addressing the first problem in the Corinthian church. We said that the Corinthian church was a problem church. And the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul addressing those problems that they have and giving them gospel answers to help them. And the problem that they had that we discovered last week was that they were a divided people. Because they were basing their identity and their unity on their favorite apostle or teacher. They had separated into four different groups which fractured the church family and the unity there in Corinth. There were some people who said that they believed that they followed Paul. They were people of Paul's party. And then Apollos who was another apostle. They were of Apollos. And some who followed Peter. And there were even some that said they followed Jesus. Not because they really did, but they were just proud to say that they were. We saw that one of the things that they were also basing their unity on was who baptized them. And so the people who were baptized by Apollos thought they were better than those who were baptized by Paul or Peter. And this was just driving the church apart so that Paul has to ask them, was Paul crucified for you? Is Christ divided? Were you baptized in my name? Of course, the answer is no. What Paul is doing in this chapter, addressing this problem, what we talked about last week is that a church's unity must be centered and founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not our petty preferences or the things that um, make us different, but on the unity that we have in the same Savior with the same grace and the same gospel. It is Jesus who died for these people and for us. It is Jesus who unites his people into one body. It is Jesus who has commanded us to be baptized in his name. And for these Corinthians, the gospel essentially became to them who they liked better. Whether it was Paul or Peter or Apollos. And the power dynamics of who baptized them so that they can claim bragging rights. Doesn't that sound silly? But yet, 
similar arguments abound in churches every day, just in a 21st century context than what was different from here. As we look at verse 17, we started 17 last week, Paul is now going to attempt to unify them around the real gospel. What is at the heart of Christianity? What is at the heart of this church in Corinth? And he's about to drop a big hammer of truth upon them. In verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And that's going to be the thrust of this sermon today, is in verse 17. What Paul does here is he's going to address the problem, he's going to dissect the problem, and he's going to tell them this is what the problem, why it's a problem, and what they are telling the world by believing the things they're doing. He first says that Christ did not send me to baptize. That's problem number one. The first problem and the first consequence of their action is this. Placing their identity in the baptism of who baptized them. What apostle? Secondly, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, nor to preach with words of eloquent wisdom. That's the second problem that he's going to address here. Why? Because the Corinthian church was placing too much credit on oratory skill. They were placing too much credit on the... Powerful speaking abilities of Apollos, who was a very eloquent speaker. And so, the people who followed Apollos liked him better because he was a better preacher than Paul. And Paul's about to get down to the crux of the matter, that Christ has sent him on a mission. And this is not to baptize. We'll talk about that in a second. Secondly, it's not to preach fanciful sermons. Because when we do that, we have the wrong idea of what baptism is. And this is what he's saying. And the consequence of what they are doing, placing their unity on who baptized them or placing their unity on who they like better because they speak better, eloquent wisdom, is they do this. And that's the last part of that verse. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So that's what we're going to do in this sermon. We're going to address each of those complaints... The baptism thing, speaking with eloquent wisdom, and what that communicates. We are avoiding the cross of Christ. And this is what these Corinthian church church was doing. Let's start with the first one, baptism. It seems here like Paul is minimizing the importance of baptism. He's not. He's making a point. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He's driving home a point based on the issue they had at hand. Some people look at this and say, see, God doesn't want us to baptize. No. Jesus himself said in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are commanded to be baptized as followers of Christ. Paul's not saying here, I'm not supposed to be baptizing. He's trying to make a point of what is most important. What's most important is not that you're baptized, but that you know Jesus. You can't start with baptism. You have to start with the Savior. 
He's not minimizing baptism. He's making a distinction between the real gospel and what the baptism represents of the gospel. And so, because Paul even said he baptized some people, he mentioned in the previous verses just a few, a handful of people that he did baptize. And we'll talk about that in a second. And again, he's trying to get them to be leaving a man-centered view of their Christianity and to be focused on the Lord Jesus. Which if you go back a couple of verses, it's why he asked them, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? What Paul is saying here is, God has not called me to be an apostle to go to you so that I could start my own fan club. Is that what Jesus sent me to Corinth to do? This is what he means, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He hasn't called me to go to you so that you can brag that I baptized you. That's foolishness. He has sent me to preach Christ, to magnify the cross, to magnify the gospel of our Lord and Savior. Because it is that how sinners are converted. It is how sinners are saved and are and are saved from the wrath of God. If all we needed to do was baptize people so they can go to heaven, then why did Jesus have to die? If all we had to do was just baptize people and get them wet, then we should all stop what we're doing now. Let's go to the beach, tackle people in the Gulf of Mexico. And then just say the words, and they're baptized. That's crazy talk. But yet, this is what they were doing. They were magnifying their baptism by their favorite apostle as being the crux of their faith. And this is why he says, I've come here to tell you about Jesus of Nazareth who died on a cross and rose again from the dead. That's the gospel. If you repent of your sins and believe in him, you will be saved from the wrath of God. If all we need to do is baptize people, then let's go get a lot of people wet. In fact, just invite your whole neighborhood to your house if you have a pool. And then just push them in one at a time when they're not expecting it. No. As a matter of fact, this is why Paul says he's glad he didn't baptize a lot of people. He says that in a couple of verses back. Why is he so glad? You think, that's not something maybe a preacher should brag about. I'm glad I didn't baptize a lot of people. And the reason he says that, again, is not about minimizing baptism. But it's because of what they were thinking baptism led to. There was only a few people who were baptized by Paul, and they were thinking about it all incorrectly. And so if he had baptized more, the problem would be more widespread. Interesting. Well, Paul is saying, you are proving that if, if I had baptized more of you, you'd give me more glory than you did Jesus. Wow. And see, this is something that I think we just need to pause and address because baptism is so important. We need to understand what baptism is because there's a lot of people that misunderstand it today. There's a false doctrine that is taught in some churches today called 
baptismal regeneration. It's a big fancy word, but don't get scared. You know the word baptism, right? Regeneration is just the word that means new life or born again, right? So there's some people who believe that they become born again by being baptized. So their salvation is dependent on whether they were baptized or not. That's one of the requirements that God has. Let me just ask the question, if baptism was a part of salvation, then why did Paul say he wasn't sent to go do it? You would think Paul, who loves sinners and is preaching the gospel around the world, who is, who is pleading with people to come to Christ, if baptism was a part of the equation as a ticket to get into heaven, he would say, Christ has sent me to baptize you, because if not, you're all going to hell. But no, baptism is not a part of of becoming a Christian. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism doesn't forgive anybody of their sins. Then what's the point of being baptized? Baptism only shows what has already happened in you. It doesn't do anything to save you. It points to a greater reality. It pictures something And that something is the gospel. If baptism is needed to be saved and go to heaven, then I guess Jesus was wrong. Because why would he tell the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise? I guess Jesus better fix his theology, right? No. Baptism is a sign of something that's already happened to you. A person repents of their sin believes the gospel, trusts in Christ alone for salvation. They are then converted. The Holy Spirit regenerates them by grace through faith in Christ alone. And they're born again. And then, now that they believe in Jesus, now that they're following Christ, our Lord has said, as a sign of your faith, go be baptized. And we as Baptists believe in dunking. Right? We put people underneath the water because that's what the word means to dunk underwater, to immerse underwater. It's what the word baptism means to baptize. But also, it pictures the gospel. As our Lord Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, so a believer in the water is telling everyone who's watching that their old self has also died in Christ, has been buried, and now has been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. It pictures what happened in here, not a formula of what to do to get there. It's just like a sign that points in the right direction. We have a lot of signs in our lives that mean different things. A very common one is a wedding ring. In case you didn't know, I am married. My wife would say amen, but she's back in children. No, she's here somewhere. You here? She's here. Okay. I thought you'd say amen, but that's okay. All right. Maybe she doesn't want to claim me right now. As I am married. <laughs> there you go. There you go. On cue. Married people have a sign that they've been married. It's a wedding ring, right? I mean, most people have it. Not everyone has a wedding ring. That's fine. Normally, a wedding ring is on your left hand. Let's be clear about something. This ring doesn't make me married, does it? 
It doesn't make me married. What does it do? It shows that I have been married. It shows that I have covenanted with another woman for life. I have made a promise and vows to her before God. Let me ask you a question. If this ring makes me married, then does taking it off make me unmarried? This is an easy one, guys. <laughs> no. Taking it off doesn't make me unmarried. Why? Because it's just a sign, a symbol that I belong to somebody else. This is what this ring means. That I've made a covenant with another woman for life. In the same way, that's what baptism is. Baptism is a sign that a person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And by following and obeying the Lord in baptism, they're not becoming a Christian. They're showing that they already have become one. And this is what Paul is trying to say. Christ has not sent me to baptize so I can have my own cult following. Stop that. No. Baptism is a covenantal sign that we see that we belong to Christ. We belong to a local church who affirms our faith. We gather on the Lord's Day. And because we can't see each other get baptized every day, there's other signs in our life to show that we belong to Him. And some of those signs, of course, are being here today with God's people, living in obedience to Christ, repenting of sin every day. Those are ongoing, visible signs of our faith that tell us that something has happened in here that we're not the same people we used to be. What makes you a Christian is that eternal covenant of God who sent the Holy Spirit in our hearts to awaken us from our spiritual death. God chose us in him, sent Christ to die for us, gave us his spirit who granted faith and repentance to our dead hearts and caused us to be born again. And none of that happens through the waters of baptism. None of it. Baptism is extremely important because our Lord told us to do it and because it's a means of grace. That we can have our faith strengthened. But here's the point. Here's the point he's trying to make to them. It's that last phrase of verse 17. If we make baptism the center point of our faith. The cross of Christ is emptied of its power. This is what we're saying. The word emptied there means void or nullified, not valid, without any legal force. When people say that they've been saved because they've been baptized, they take away the power of God and Christ to save them through a bloody cross. Again, if God needed our baptismal waters to save us, then why did Jesus have to die as our substitute? When you place anything in the way, if you add anything as a way to be saved, then what you're saying, me plus Jesus equals salvation, you might as well write void on the cross because it's emptied of all its power. That God, by his mercy and grace, even though 
Sinners are worthy to be damned, worthy to be judged and face his wrath. Our God is merciful. Our God is loving and compassionate and kind and has chosen a people for himself to glorify himself by sending his son to die for them and to redeem a people from among them. And nobody is worthy of that. Nobody deserves that. But the power of the cross is the glory of God and turning his wrath on sinners who are his enemies and transforming them into be his dear children. That's the gospel, my friends. And when you say that God needs me and my good works, that God needs me and my money, God needs my, my obedience, my morality, my baptism, my church membership, my you might as well write void on the cross like you do a check that you no longer want someone to cash because you've emptied it all of its glorious power and it doesn't mean anything else. How much is a voided check worth? Nothing. Zero. Zip. Nada. And that's what we do when we add Jesus plus anything to the gospel. If you even took a fraction of a percentage point and made salvation be any part about you, you've emptied the cross of its power. And this is what the Corinthian church was doing. I belong to Paul. Paul baptized me. I'm a Paulite. I'm a follower of Apollos, the great speaker. And Paul, said, and Paul is saying to them, what? I didn't go there so I could have my own fan club, guys. I've gone to preach the gospel. And if you're basing your faith on me, the cross is void, empty of power. You weren't crucified. I wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized in my name. And yet this happens every day. In the 16th century, you know, the Catholic Church had done this in many different ways. In order to build St. Peter's Basilica, Pope Leo X issued a decree authorizing the sale of indulgences. An indulgence was essentially a piece of paper that if you gave money to the church to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, then the church, by that piece of paper, would lessen your time in purgatory. Listen, friends, there is no purgatory. There's no such thing. It's a made-up word that's been invented by the Catholic Church to guilt people and control them by fear. It's nowhere in the Bible. When you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. That's what the Bible says. You either go to heaven because you've repented of your sins and believed the Lord Jesus Christ and become born again, or you go to hell because you've not become born again. It's as simple as that. It's appointed for a man once to die, and after that, the judgment, not a waiting room to see if you have more works or time so that you can come into heaven. If when you die, you have to go to a place called purgatory because you weren't good enough to get into heaven, essentially what you're saying is that Jesus dying for me on the cross wasn't enough. And I guess Jesus was wrong when he said, it is finished, which is the Greek word to telestai, which means paid in full. 
You make Christ a liar by saying you have to add something to get yourself into heaven. Which is why Martin Luther in 1517 stood firm and began the protest heard around the world. Which sparked the fires of the Protestant Reformation. And if you thought that indulgences were a thing of the past, they are not. In recent years, the Vatican has issued a new decree. In 2013, they told their followers... Catholics, that if, and I'm not making this up, just look it up on the internet. The internet is not wrong, ever. (laughs) I kid, but no, this one is true, trust me. This one is true. The Vatican issued a decree from the Pope that's saying, if you follow the Pope on Twitter, you can lessen your time in purgatory. Wow. Wow. You've made the cross void. You've emptied of of its power, of saving grace, of a merciful God, giving to us what we do not deserve. But now you have to earn it. You have to do your time. You have to add something. This is what the Corinthians were doing. So that's the first one. Baptism. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And here's the second thing they were tripping up on. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. The second thing they were doing was placing a heavy emphasis on the preaching skills of the preachers. Eloquent words of wisdom. The word wisdom is the Greek word Sophia. You probably know somebody named Sophia. Tell them that they're wisdom. Literally, it's wisdom of words is how it says it in the Greek. This is where we get our word philosophy. The word philosophy is made up of two Greek words, philo, which means love, and sophia, wisdom. What is philosophy? It's to be a lover of wisdom. And the Greeks loved wisdom. They loved to hear these debates and these um, Uh, had these arguments and they love intellectual persuasive arguments and they just love that then they gravitated naturally to the best orators and speakers and now by Paul saying this he's calling out the followers of Apollos because Apollos was not doing anything wrong It's not his fault he was a good speaker. He was a good speaker. Matter of fact, this is how we're introduced to him in Acts 18, 24. Acts 18, 24, Luke says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So Apollos was a big hit in Corinth. Why? They could listen to him. And say, we respect him more than Paul. Have you heard Paul speak? I mean, Paul once preached a long sermon and a guy fell asleep in the window and fell down and died. That's how boring of a speaker Paul is. I mean, that happened. Read the book of Acts. So they're basing their unity. They're getting all excited about now who could speak the best. And why one is better than the other, and our, our guy is better than yours. No, Christ did not send me to baptize. Christ did not send me to preach with eloquent words of wisdom or philosophy. I'm not going to take 
your human wisdom and cater to your needs and then try to glorify myself so that I could save you, is what Paul is saying. They're putting such an emphasis on this. And guess what they were doing? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If you're going to put all of your eggs in one basket in someone's speaking ability, what glory does that leave to God? Does God get the glory? No. Why, Paul? Why don't we need human wisdom when sharing the gospel? Now, as Paul's saying, hey, guys, I'm going to be as boring as possible. <laughs> I'm not going to try to be winsome at all. I'm going to, my goal is to put you to sleep. Is that what Paul is saying? My, my point is to be as ineloquent as possible. No, that's not what he's saying either. Right? He's just trying to downplay their dependence on oratory skill. And here's the point of why is in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Why? Why did not God send you to speak with eloquent words of wisdom? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul, why don't we need human wisdom when sharing the gospel? Because it's pointless. That's why. Because there is no amount of human wisdom that will convert a person. None. Not a single one. If God needed us to be smart, witty, charming, eloquent, in order to accomplish his task of saving people... Everybody goes to hell. And that's what they were saying. Oh, we can't let Paul speak. Paulos, can you take this one? Because we want to make sure more people get saved. It's this, guy. this guy is dynamite. He's, out of, he's awesome. He's going to wow you with what he knows and his skills. Everybody goes to hell. Why? Because they're trusting in the human abilities of people. If God needed us to be philosophical, politically correct, culturally relevant, to accomplish his task of saving sinners, everybody goes to hell. The cross is made Empty of its power. Here's the truth of the matter, friends. God doesn't need us. God is God. He chooses to use us for his glory. We are his vessels to accomplish, his, to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish for him. But God doesn't need us to do it. He glorifies himself in spite of us. In spite of us. For his name's sake. And this is why, this is why some people 
are afraid to share the gospel. Let's be real now, friends. If you ask the people, why aren't they, why aren't they more evangelistic? Why aren't they more sharing the gospel with lost people? Some of you would probably say, well, I'm just not good enough at it. Or, I'm not gifted enough. And that is a lie from the pits of hell. Because God has not called you to be Apollos. God has not called you to be Billy Graham or Charles Spurgeon. God has called you to be you. And in spite of you, he uses you for his glory. Not because you speak eloquent words or are witty or you tell the best stories or you're even the best looking person. God uses you because you use his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God can be glorified by the most humblest of servants who cannot speak and maybe stutter their way through a presentation who maybe is not abundantly clear as humanly possible. But if God is going to use his word, he will do so like with people like that more than the most gifted person in the world. Why? Because God ensures that he is glorified and we are not. That's why. When we trust the abilities of people to accomplish the task of God, what are we doing? We make the cross of Christ empty of its power. And what Paul says in verse 18 is, listen, preach the cross. You know why? Because there's only two ways to respond to it. Those who are hardened towards God and unconverted, it's going to be folly to them. That's the word foolishness. I have family members who tell me I'm a fool for what I believe. But I'm wasting my time. Atheist. The gospel is foolishness to them. They can't understand how, how God sent Jesus to die for the sins of the, and you believe in him and then all of a sudden you go to heaven. That's foolishness to them. They don't get it. But you see, that's the power of God. The power of God to save through perhaps a story that it's too easy to understand. It's got to be something more complicated than that, right? No. Not at all. God uses his word in spite of who gives it. And if you think you can't be used of God, remember God has even spoken through a donkey. God has spoken through all kinds of people. Charles Spurgeon tells a story one day. He says, and I'm going to read this. He says, I shall never forget one day when my dear old grandfather was alive. I was to preach a sermon. There was a great crowd of people and I did not arrive for the train was delayed. And therefore the venerable man commenced to preach in my stead. He was far on in his sermon when I made my appearance at the door. 
looking to me, he said, You have all come to hear my grandson, and therefore I will stop that you may hear him. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Can you, Charles? My answer from the aisle was, I cannot preach the gospel better, but if I could, it would not be a better gospel. And that's the point. That's the point. Probably the sermon that God most used the most on American soil was preached by Jonathan Edwards, who people in that room reported on. Jonathan Edwards spoke in a monotone voice and read the entire sermon. The name of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's a sermon that sparked great revival in America. As untold thousands of people came to faith in Christ across the country through the fires of revival. Jonathan Edwards had preached that sermon in another church and was fired. And yet in this church, he preached the same exact sermon in the same exact way. And it was told that the people who were listening to him were clinging onto the pews for fear that they would slip off into hell. And he read it in a monotone voice, word for word from a piece of paper. Probably not the way they teach you to preach in seminary. And God used that as, a, as evidence Do you not think I can do what I want? There's no amount of entertainment that you can entertain sinners into heaven. And churches try that, don't they? That's why they have the smoke, the lights, the mirrors, and the whole nine yards. Petting zoos, circuses. I'm not even kidding you. In the church service here in Bradenton. Because we have to make Jesus look cool. We have to make Jesus look entertaining. If not, people won't want to come back. What do you do when you do such seeker-sensitive, that's what they call it, things? You make the cross of Christ void of its power. The gospel is sufficient to accomplish the purposes of God and saving his people. Just give them the truth. That's all you need to do. I can't share Christ. Give them the truth. But they're going to reject me. Good, they rejected Jesus. Join the club. Give them the truth. Jeremiah preached for 40 years before anyone heard him. Isaiah signed up to serve God. And Isaiah says, here I am. Here I am. Lord, send me. And God says, good. Thank you, Isaiah. I'm going to send you people who will not hear. I'm going to send you to people who will not believe. And Isaiah says, for how long, O Lord? Isaiah chapter 6, look it up. God says, until I make their land a waste and drive them from their homes. Why? Because God will do through his word what he wants. And sometimes that is the hardening of people and sometimes that is the softening of hearts to repentance. No amount of flash or eloquence or personality or charm or humor 
will ever accomplish the purposes of God more. From a human perspective, it may look like this person is more successful than this person. But guess what? Not to God. Not to God. The power to save people is not found in human wisdom of the preacher. The power to save people is in the message of the preacher. Because the message of the preacher is the word of God. So God is glorified all the way. Paul says this is why it is foolish, Corinthians, to trust in human wisdom. That's philosophy, this love of words. Lost people are lost The message of the gospel is foolishness to them. They will reject it. You give it anyway. There's no excuse to be boring. You just give it, trusting God that you're going to be faithful to the word. And let God do what he wills through it. And once you realize that God will do what he wants, when he wants, and who he wants, it's a freedom. God has not called us to save anybody. God has just told us to go tell everybody, amen? He does the saving, but he's called us to do the telling. And this is Paul's argument, and I'll close with this verse in Romans chapter 1. It's a word that he uses here in verse 18. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is the power of God? The word of the cross. The word of the cross, the gospel. And look what he says to Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed. So the same word in Greek as embarrassed. I am not embarrassed of the gospel. Now remember, when Paul is writing this, he has been in towns where they put him in jail for preaching the gospel. They had beat him up and left him for dead for preaching the gospel. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of it. But Paul, they're going to kill you. They're going to beat you up. They're going to put you in jail. I'm not ashamed of it. But Paul, can't you be a little bit more politically correct when you share it? I'm not ashamed of it. I'm going to share it. Why? Look, for it, the gospel, is the power of God. Paul didn't say, I am the power of God. He said, it is the power of God. What? The gospel. And he says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is the power of God. Same thing. The word power, there is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite. Essentially what Paul is saying, it is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the dynamite of God. It is the dynamite needed to rip apart and break apart stony hearts to the truth. It is the power of God for what? Salvation. To be saved from God's wrath. For who? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You Corinthians, trusting in eloquent words... You Corinthians trusting in who baptized you. When you do such things, you make the cross void of its power. This is not the way God wants you to live. Be united in the gospel. Give the glory to God, not to men.
and trust him for what he will do. I had to learn this a long time ago as a young preacher. I've gone through different phases of my life. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Some that I wish I did not, I do not want to relive. But all of these things have made me into who I am today. You know, you live and learn, right? I think we've all lived and learned. Some of us harder than others. Now I'm one. I thought my job as a young preacher was to, I'm not even, you know, here, 22 years old, 23 years old out of Bible college. I thought my job was to make people feel as guilty as I could. That if I could just make them feel as guilty as I could, they'll feel so rotten about themselves that they'll want to come forward and make a decision. That's what I thought. You know what Dan was trying to do? Be the Holy Spirit. I learned a long time ago that doesn't work. And if people do come forward, it's not because the Holy Spirit's working in them. It's because you guilted them and manipulated them to come. Then I went through a whole phase where I was that seeker-sensitive pastor doing the entertainment and the da 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 whatever. I'm not even going to go there. Where I felt I had to do that. I speak from experience, not just condemning those who do that because I did it. And I had to repent of that because I was not trusting in the word of God to do the work of God. What was I trusting in? Me. I was trusting in my creativity. I was trusting in my um, ability to communicate a message. And I would do some crazy things. I'm not even going to tell you right now. I know you're probably wondering what. But I would spend more time in those days preparing how to communicate the message via props or videos or whatever than I did actually even studying the text of the scripture. Why? Because I was trusting in these things to do the work of God and for me to be the Holy Spirit that way. And that didn't work either. And if people did respond and people did come forward, some of it by God's grace he used, some of it was not real. Until God had to humble me to say, Dan, who do you think you are? Seriously, who do you think you are? Just preach the word. Preach the word. Be faithful to the scripture. Tell people what I've said. This is when I started preaching verse by verse. Because one of the reasons I do that is because it gets Dan out of the way. I don't get to set the agenda. God does. We just preach the next verse. No matter how difficult or crazy it seems, I preach the next verse. Why? Because this is what God has said. I'm not going to get an idea and then go to the scripture to back me up. No, I'm going to the scripture and I'm going to tell you what it says. I love what John MacArthur says. He says, the job of the pastor is like one of a waiter in a restaurant. The job of a waiter is to bring the food from the kitchen to the table without messing it up. And that's what I pray every week God help me do. Not to be the chef along the way that's sprinkling other things that ought not to be there. But just be faithful to the word of God. Why? Because in spite of Dan Sardinus, I pray that God is glorified by the preaching of his word and the Holy Spirit will do what he wills when he wants and who he wants and how he wants. And I'm out of the way and I have hopefully have done my job and I stand before God 
as one who will be held accountable to God. But may we as a church know that our unity and centrality of our faith is not in any person, not in our baptism, not in our church membership, not in our favorite personalities and skill sets. It's in Christ and Christ alone. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of the cross that saved sinners in spite of us. In spite of who we, do, who we are and what we do, the power of the cross, God will do what he wills, even when it seems unbelievable. Let's pray. Oh God, help us. Help us to know today this power of the cross, that we may not empty it of its power and make it void, but God, that we would be faithful to your word, that we would be faithful to this text that we would get ourselves out of the way and not trust in human skill sets or wisdom, but just to faithfully preach the word of God. Oh God, we love you. We pray for those in this room that do not know you. We pray that they would understand the gospel, that Jesus died for their sins and rose again on the third day. And if they trust in him and repent of their sins, they can be saved today and have this new life. Oh God, in spite of all of my inadequacies and my shortcomings, use me in spite of me, God, to do your will, work and will in this church and in your people as they go out into the world to evangelize and to disciple and to tell people about Christ. Encourage them that God has called us all to do it. We may not do it all the same way, but the power is not in our abilities, but in the message that we need to share the message. That's the foundation. Oh, God, be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.